Chart Chat is a member of the Tiege.fm network from WTJU Radio. Find out more at Tiege.fm. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Hello everybody, Tanner Green here, and welcome to another edition of Chart Archives. This is the second in an ongoing series I'm doing, looking at past weeks of the Billboard Hot 100. This one's coming a little later than I was hoping. I was hoping to do two weeks, but this is more like three weeks. But once I kind of get my process down, and now that the summer's hit, I think I'll be able to make these a little more regularly and hopefully continue experimenting with putting them up on YouTube as well so it's easier for people to find. So we'll see how all that goes. Just saying up at the front, feel free to let people know about the show. Any way of getting the word out, it's great. We appreciate it. And as always, the way this works, taking a random date generator and figuring out a random week in Hot 100 history to focus on. And this time we're going to 1965. We're going to the chart week dated May 29th. Let's run through those chart debuts for that week. We start right at the bottom at number 100, where Shirley Ellis debuts with the puzzle song, A Puzzle in Song. A couple consecutive debuts come next. You got number 98, 97, and 96. Brenda Lee, no one. Bobby Martin, I love you so. And then back to Brenda Lee with Too Many Rivers. From there, we jump to number 94, where Jimmy Velvet debuts with the song It's Almost Tomorrow. Right above that, at number 93, we've got You'll Miss Me When I'm Gone by Fontella Bass and Bobby McClure. One spot higher at number 92, there's Fred Hughes with his song Ooh Wee Baby, I Love You. Lip Sync to the Tongue Twisters by Len Barry debuts at number 90. And then at number 89, you've got Tom Jones with his song Little Lonely One. Keeping the sequential train rolling, at number 88, we've got The Ronettes featuring Veronica with Is This What I Get for Loving You? And then at number 87, The Seekers debut with A World of Our Own. The Marvelettes debut at number 85 with I'll Keep Holding On. Tonight's The Night by Solomon Burke debuts at number 80. And then another night-themed track. This one's called Here Comes the Night, and that debuts at number 74, and that's by them. The Shangri-Las debut above that at number 73 with Give Us Your Blessings. And then a pretty substantial leap up to the highest debut of this week again, May 29th, 1965. Debuting at number 50, you've got Herman's Hermits with the song Wonderful World. And for the first artist I want to talk about, we are going to link back to last episode's focus on soul. Again, 1971 was last episode. Talked about Betty Wright, talked about Joe Simon. And this week, we're starting with one of the artists at the core of that genre's emergence in the early to mid-1960s. And while he didn't have the same level of pop success as contemporaries like Sam Cooke or Ray Charles... Solomon Burke was arguably just as influential in shaping the stylistic qualities of what would eventually be called soul. So Solomon Burke was born in 1940 in Philadelphia and quickly became a core part of the church that his grandmother operated out of her home. Burke gave his first sermon when he was only seven, and then not soon after that, by the age of 12, he was running his own radio ministry on local gospel station WHATAM. In 1955, at the age of only 15, Burke signed with Apollo Records, and according to hearsay, at least the head of that label, Bess Berman, wanted to position Burke as a pop singer, sort of the next Harry Belafonte, if reports are accurate. 
but regardless of the veracity of that story, Burke's Apollo singles sold pretty poorly. And then by the end of 1957, Burke had a dispute with his manager over royalties that saw him drop from the label and homeless pretty soon afterwards. Burke bounced back quickly, though. He enrolled in Eccles College of Mortuary Science and found work after graduating at a funeral home. And this was anything but a stopgap measure. Throughout his life, Burke maintained a career as a mortician, and it served as sort of another source of income alongside the financial ebbs and flows that are really inherent to any recording artist. Burke's music career finally took off once he signed with the famed Atlantic Records at the dawn of the 1960s, and he pretty quickly made a substantial impression on both label management and also the famed Atlantic Records producer Jerry Wexler, who in hindsight described Solomon Burke as the absolute best soul singer bar none. And Burke's timing in terms of when he signed with Atlantic was fortuitous for Atlantic as well, because two of the label's biggest stars had recently left for larger labels. Ray Charles in 1959 moved to ABC, and then soon after Bobby Darin headed to Capitol Records, which left Atlantic in a pretty dicey, precarious financial situation. And so when Burke began a string of R&B hits in the first half of the 1960s, both parties, both Burke and Atlantic, were understandably delighted. The first of these hits, and one of the biggest, came in 1961, when Burke released his second 45 with Atlantic titled Just Out of Reach of My Two Open Arms. The track shot to number 7 on the R&B chart and an impressive number 24 on the Hot 100, which was actually the second highest position Burke would ever reach on the Hot 100. Commercial success aside, Just Out of Reach is also symbolically important because it actually was originally a country song, and that sort of intergeneric borrowing represents a core part of what made Burke such an important and innovative artist. Around the same time as Ray Charles's acclaimed 1962 album Modern Sounds in Country and Western Music, Burke was blending these genres in a similar manner, country with R&B and vice versa. Originally written by Virgil Stewart, Just Out of Reach saw multiple releases in the 1950s by country stars like Patsy Cline in 1958 and Fair and Young in 1952. So first, let's listen to a bit of Fair and Young's recording. Again, this is from 1952. set me free too far away from you. And all to charge Just out of reach Of my two empty arms Each night in dreams And then for comparison, nine years later, again, this is Solomon Burke's 1961 rendition that went top ten in the R&B charts of that year. Blues that keeps on bothering me Chains that just won't set me free Too far away from you And all your charm Just out of reach of my Burke would continue to blend country influences into his work over the coming decades, 
but in a more immediate sense, Just Out of Reach sets the stage for the first of countless demonstrations of vocal flexibility. And on top of that, Burke would go on to score eight more top 10 R&B hits, with some of them even charting in the bottom half of the Pop Top 40, which, it's easy to lose this in hindsight, but was not always the case for R&B artists. One of my personal favorites of these hits, I remember listening to this for the first time back in undergrad and being completely bowled over, uh, was 1962, uh, the song called Cry to Me, which landed just outside the top 40, but is still a total vocal tour de force. A few years later, in 1965, Burke was at the height of his commercial success. In the first half of that year, he got his sole R&B number one and his highest Hot 100 entry ever at number 22. That's called Got to Get You Off My Mind. And then shortly after that track comes Tonight's the Night, which is this first debut we're looking at for this week. May 29th, 1965, debuting at number 80, and it would go on to peak at number 28 on the Hot 100 and at number 2 on the R&B chart. Yes, sir. Oh, yes, it is. Now, listen to me, honey. Someone should call. Don't answer the phone. Somebody knocks on the door. Tell them we're not home. I just want it to be done. Nobody but me and you, honey. And even after all these years, I will never cease to be amazed by Burke's ability to snap in just a moment's notice from really feisty, high-register vibrato to a really sultry, buttery smooth, low end. And it speaks to this total ease with the material. There's a push and pull to the timing of his notes, a flexibility with the rhythms. And if you've got a song whose lyrics are about the anticipation of a romantic encounter, 
it's hard to think of a better representation of the range of emotions that that can entail. After this commercial peak, Burke would go on to land a handful more R&B hits through the early 1970s. One of the biggest of those was the 1969 cover of the Creedence Clearwater Revival track Proud Mary that landed just outside the Pop Top 40 at number 45. As we discussed in the previous episode of Chart Archives, just like Betty Wright, just like Joe Simon, the mid to late 1970s saw a decline in Burke's commercial fortunes. Like Betty Wright, however, Solomon Burke continued on with his career undeterred, kept touring extensively, kept releasing albums for a variety of small labels, and even though none of those albums hit the Billboard 200 or even the R&B albums chart, they still enjoyed a really warm reception among fans for Burke's fidelity to his recognizable style. Eventually, the recording industry did come back around to Burke, perhaps finally realizing that such a singular talent actually deserved some recognition. Burke received his first Grammy nomination in 1983, where his rendition of the gospel classic Take My Hand, Precious Lord received a nod for Best Soul Gospel Performance. However, that award ultimately went to Al Green, and Burke would not be nominated for another Grammy for another two decades. Finally, in 2002, coming one year after his induction into the Rock Hall of Fame, Solomon Burke finally won a Grammy for Best Country Blues album with his release Don't Give Up On Me. Don't Give Up On Me enjoyed a degree of mainstream visibility that Burke's preceding releases hadn't, likely thanks in part to the Rock Hall of Fame induction and also due to the fact that songs on the album had writing credits from Grammy favorites like Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, Van Morrison, Brian Wilson, and so on. Burke continued to record throughout the 2000s, right up until his death in 2010, which came shortly after he arrived in Amsterdam for an upcoming performance. Echoing his first success with Atlantic, one of these late period albums was an entire country album titled Nashville, which actually saw some motion on the country albums chart. Nashville includes features from a variety of country luminaries, including Emmylou Harris and Dolly Parton, and we're actually going to listen to a snippet of the latter duet. This is Tomorrow is Forever with Dolly Parton. Take my hand and run with me Out of the past called yesterday Walk with me into the future of tomorrow Yesterday must be forgot No looking back, no matter what There's nothing there but memories that bring sorrow. Yesterday is gone, but tomorrow is forever. Moving onwards from Mr. Burke. While 1965 represented the apex of his career, that year was also the tail end of one of the most important spheres of early 1960s pop music. And I'm talking, of course, about the wonderful world of girl groups. Saw multiple of them debuting in the charts this week of 1965. And we are going to start with a group that perfected the more macabre strain of that particular style, the Shangri-Las. The Shangri-Las were one of the last major girl groups of the early to mid-1960s forming in 1963 while the four singers were still attending high school in Queens, New York. The group consisted of two pairs of sisters, lead singer Mary Weiss and her sister Betty, alongside Margie and Marianne Ganser. After releasing two singles on different labels and establishing a bit of a buzz through local performances, 
The group teamed up with producer George Morton for his demo of the song Remember, Walking in the Sand. The Shangri-Las then signed to Redbird Records, which was a label established by the famed songwriters Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And after the group signed the contract, Redbird issued a re-recorded version of Remember in July 1964. And that song catapulted all the way to number 5 on the Hot 100 and really quickly established the group's bad girl image, so to speak. And also their flair for drama. The Shangri-La's follow-up single was even more successful, reaching the very top of the charts in only eight weeks. Leader of the Pack was not only the Shangri-La's biggest hit, it was one of the final, most prominent examples of a pop sub-style dating back to the 1950s. These so-called death discs were tales of tragic romances aimed squarely at teenage audiences, usually depicting the deaths of reckless boyfriends leaving behind grieving, devoted girlfriends. And important to note, the aforementioned songwriters Lieber and Stoller, who, again, founded the Shangri-La's Redbird Records, were at the very start of this trend, helping to establish it back in 1955, when they wrote the hit Black Denim Trousers and Motorcycle Boots, which was recorded and released by The Cheers, again in 1955. The success of Black Denim Trousers was thanks in part to the concurrent death uh, pretty soon after the song's release of actor James Dean, which further established the link between death discs, rock and roll culture, and general societal anxieties over purportedly rebellious youth. And nine years later, at the tail end of that lyrical theme's heyday, we hear very similar imagery right down to the motorcycle in the Shangri-La's number one hit, Leader of the Pack. Yeah. 
Much of the Shangri-La's musical appeal comes from how well they're able to mine these tropes for the absolute maximum, almost absurd level of drama, thanks in part to producer George Morton's edition of sound effects. The revving of a motorcycle might sound quaint or even dated to modern ears, but these were cutting-edge recording techniques at the time, perfectly suited to these depictions of teenage tragedy. And since Leader of the Pack was so successful, again, topping the Billboard Hot 100, it's no surprise that the Shangri-Las continued to mind this subject. Which brings us to our second debut of this week, May 29th, 1965, debuting at number 73. Once again, this is Give Us Your Blessings. Give Us Your Blessings only peaked at number 29 in the summer of 1965, but that relative underperformance belies how the stakes are even higher here than they were in Leader of the Pack. Not only are the teen's parents even more overtly disapproving, both the boy and the girl die, not through a mysterious twist of fate, but because they were crying so much that they could not read the sign that said detour. It is completely ludicrous, and it is completely ludicrous in the best possible way. And one of the details that makes me love the song even more is that the background singers act as a sort of framing for the plot. The teenage narrator actually only appears in quotation during the chorus, within the broader contextualizing that the backing singers do. It's almost as if some sort of ancient Greek chorus steps in to deliver to the audience the true moral of the story. And that takes us to the sort of conflicted, ongoing interpretation of these death discs in the decades since their heyday. In looking at the academic literature on the subject, there, I found a 2004 article published in the journal Popular Music and Society, where Ian Inglis notes that there is a common interpretation of these songs as, again, representations of rebellious teens similar to a James Dean figure. However, Inglis argues for the opposite that these are, quote, cautionary tales that act to remind young people of the dangers awaiting them should they be tempted to stray from the paths mapped out for them by a wiser and benevolent community, end quote. But then in 2009, there's an article published in Shofar, which is a Jewish studies journal. And in this article, John Stratton takes a radically different approach. Stratton argues that the Shangri-La's music actually expresses a disillusionment with suburban life, felt by an increasing number of Jewish Americans over the first half of the 1960s. Stratton notes that the Shangri-Las and most of the Brill-building songwriters they worked with were themselves Jewish, and Stratton actually specifically cites Give Us Your Blessings as a representative example of this frustration. Quote, 
For the Shangri-Las, love is dysfunctional. It produces personal anguish, wrecks families, and brings death. End quote. Amid these varying interpretations, Give Us Your Blessings was in many ways the death knell for the pop lineage it represented. Industry and perhaps audience attention had shifted even more strongly to British invasion groups by the end of 1965, assuring the commercial demise of nearly every girl group not signed to Motown, and really any girl group not named the Supremes. True to this trend, the Shangri-La's last Top 40 appearance came in March 1966, and subsequent releases on Redbird and then Mercury Records performed even more poorly. And thanks in part to alleged frustrations with unpaid royalties, the Shangri-La's finally disbanded in 1968. Another one of the groups on the commercial decline in 1965 was, sadly, the Ronettes, who are the last artists we're discussing this week. Though, as we'll cover in a bit, uh, changes in the pop music landscape were far from the only issue facing the group. The Ronettes' lead singer, Veronica Bennett, her sister Estelle, and their cousin, Nedra Talley, all sang together throughout their adolescence in Spanish Harlem, New York, gradually becoming more serious about performing towards the end of the 1950s. In 1961, the trio signed with the short-lived Colpix label and released a handful of unsuccessful singles under both the Colpix banner and the label's subsidiary imprint, May. By 1963, the group decided that they needed a change of pace, and Estelle actually called up famous producer Phil Spector to request an audition. Spector agreed and was immediately enthralled with Veronica's voice, so much so that he initially wanted to sign only her and not Estelle or Nedra. However, Miss Bennett intervened and mandated that Spector would sign all three girls or none at all, so all three Ronettes signed to Spector's Phyllis Records that March. And the group's first work for the label came as background singers for other acts on the roster, including Bobby Sox and the Blue Jeans and Darlene Love, but that paled in comparison to the group's first Phyllis release. In August 1963, the Ronettes released Be My Baby, which to this day is their most recognizable song, if not the most iconic girl group song ever recorded. Written by Brill-building songwriting team Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, the same pair that actually wrote songs for the Shangri-Las, including Give Us Your Blessings, Be My Baby was an absolute smash, reaching number two on the Hot 100. No matter how many times I hear that song, I swear it still gives me chills all over. It's amazing. Ugh. And as you can probably tell from that, the Ronettes quickly became known in part for the massive scale of their records, the result of Phil Spector's production style often termed the Wall of Sound. Spector used copious amounts of overdubs, rich, plentiful instrumentation, and a bevy of additional background singers, including Cher's very first recorded appearance, to craft his signature sound. All of this backing would go to waste, though, if there wasn't a compelling singer at the forefront, and Veronica Bennett was surely up to the task. Her ability to lace romantic yearning with just a hint of aggression aligned with the group's bold visual style. Massive hair, thick eyeliner, the whole deal. The Ronettes followed up Be My Baby with the number 24 hit Baby I Love You, and by the start of 1964, the group was embarking on a UK tour alongside the Rolling Stones, who themselves were actually 
quite vocal fans of the three singers. Unfortunately, the Ronettes never quite matched the success of Be My Baby, never charting another single in the top 20, let alone the top 10. But that's not to say the quality of their work declined. Their October 1964 single, Walking in the Rain, is excellent for one, and additionally peaked at number 3 on the R&B chart, and a respectable number 23 on the Hot 100. And the track even earned a Grammy nomination for its use of sound effects. Nineteen sixty-five saw dwindling returns for the Ronettes on the pop charts, when Spectre allowed the group to release any music at all. Spectre's unsettling romantic obsession with Veronica had grown over the years, to the point where he was intentionally withholding recordings made by the group, to prevent them from outgrowing his work and leaving him behind. One of the exceptions he let through, and the group's penultimate release on Spectre's Phyllis Records, is the final chart debut for this week, May 29th, 1965, and that song is called Is This What I Get for Loving You? Is This What I Get would only climb to a modest number 75 on the Hot 100 before falling off completely in just a month's time. Which is a shame, because I think this song is absolutely fascinating. It's not a death disc in the vein of the Shangri-La's work, but its gloomy tone is certainly related and clearly represents a shift from Be My Baby and Walking in the Rain, probably in an effort to stay abreast of changes in the pop landscape. Thanks to Spectre's controlling behavior, however, it would be more than a year before the Ronettes would release another single or any music in general, and that song only spent a single week at the very bottom of the Hot 100 in late 1966. It's unsurprising then that after a 1967 tour of Germany, the group finally decided to disband and go their separate ways. Unfortunately for Veronica, this entailed a marriage to Phil Spector that was marked by the latter's extremely controlling behavior, including literal imprisonment in his mansion, bizarre and frequent threats of violence and death, and Veronica wasn't able to literally escape Spector's control until 1973. 
and after a few short-lived attempts to reunite the Ronettes, most of which were met with disinterest from her former groupmates, she embarked on a solo career, and sort of sporadically released albums from 1980 onward. Veronica also collaborated with various rock acts in the 1970s and 1980s. There was a collaboration with Bruce Springsteen, and then in the 1980s, she appeared on Eddie Money's Take Me Home Tonight, which hit number four in 1986. Sadly, Estelle Bennett died in 2009 at the age of 67, while Nadra Talley dabbled in a career as a CCM artist before moving to Virginia Beach, actually, and working as a realtor. As for the Shangri-Las, Marianne Ganser died in 1970 at only 22 years old, while her sister Marge died in 1996. Betty Weiss, meanwhile, reportedly married, had a child, and currently lives in Long Island, while the group's lead singer Mary Weiss held a variety of non-musical jobs, including a stint as a furniture consultant for New York businesses, before suddenly reappearing in 2007 with an album titled Dangerous Game. And even more recently, in 2017, Veronica Spector, or Veronica Bennett, revived the Ronettes' name for a single titled Love Power. And there you have it, 1965 as the commercial peak of Solomon Burke and his trailblazing work in the early years of soul music, and 1965 as the last hurrah of two superb girl groups that never fully received the industry support they deserved. As always, you can find a Spotify playlist in the show notes that contains all of the chart debuts for this week of May 29th, 1965. Stay tuned, hopefully the next episode of Chart Archives will come in two weeks. I don't know what the date will be because, again, it's always random. That's half the fun. 
or maybe a third of the fun. The usual thank yous always apply. Thanks to Coronation Media for the intro theme and the cover art. Thanks to Teej.fm for having us on the network. Check them out at teej.fm. And again, spread the word and drop us a line. Check us out on Twitter, ChartChatCast, or ChartChatCast at gmail.com. That's all I got. Let me know what you think of the Ronettes, the Shangri-Las, Solomon Burke. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.